What is truth? Seldom black and white, usually complex. The fifth column goes on the inside in search of it. By nightfall on Saturday the 15th of October, with barely ten tents and a handful of provisions, Occupy London had begun. Depending on which paper you read, this was either the birth of genuine people-powered politics, England's answer to Tahrir Square, or a pointless gathering of non-toilet-trained hippies. Unsatisfied with the bully-boy sneers of a right-wing press, the uncritical adoration of the left, and the lack of analysis of their demands from both, I wanted to hear from those at the heart of the movement. What did they think it was really about? I began with Johnny, who's been centrally involved in the protest since it began. It's about people coming together and, and really trying to reclaim democracy and saying, we don't trust the politicians to decide for us, so this is the start of us trying to work out what we want to decide. I think from there on we're, we're going to start to have more concrete kind of agenda maybe, but within a few days we had an initial statement written up which was saying things like, you know, the current system is unsustainable, undemocratic and unjust. So it's not like we don't have a kind of compass of any sort. The initial statement also declares... We demand an end to global tax injustice and we refuse to pay for the bank's crisis. I asked Steve, who has an ongoing role in the separate protest movement UK Uncut, as well as a connection to Occupy London, to explain a bit more. There's a strong sense that our economic system has corrupted the way decisions are made. In the UK, £25 billion each year is lost through corporations and rich individuals who can afford to pay the top accountants to avoid that tax, stashing this money away in, in Monaco, in, in the Cayman Islands, these exotic places that you hear about. Now, for most people in the 99%, they pay their tax via POA. They can't afford expensive accountants. They don't have the choice of using these elaborate schemes to avoid tax. So this is one example of the way in which, if you're rich enough, you can actually end up paying proportionately less of your income in tax than, than someone less well-off than you. Which sounds OK, But isn't it true that when it comes down to it, these protesters are simply anti-capitalism with nothing concrete to put in its place? Johnny? It's not necessarily about saying, like, we want an end to capitalism. It's about trying to challenge the basis of it or or the moral argument around it. We live in a kind of world where neoliberalism has been accepted and swallowed by so many governments where it's about self-interest, it's about, you know, you make what you are, you know, you don't really owe that much back to society. And we're trying to say that actually we realise that you can't achieve anything without working together. I think that's the inherent moralism of what we're doing. It's trying to say, like, these people, you know, from Philip Green, who dodges hundreds of millions of pounds in tax, and then he has the audacity to be like, well, you know, it's, it's my money, I earned it. You know, it's the same argument made by a lot of these one percenters, I suppose you could say, and they forget who made that wealth. Paul Vallely is an award-winning writer who has helped to change government policy on development aid and debt relief and covered wars and events across the globe. I asked him what he thought of the protesters' demands on banks and tax. That's a legitimate thing to say, and it's what most ordinary people feel. I mean, there is an immediate response to that, and there's also a more considered response. If you think about it, that the way that people's individual finances and their pensions and their banking and their investments are all engaged in the international capitalist system, people have a double standpoint. They are consumers, they are victims on the one hand, but they also benefit from these systems. It's tiny a bit more... Uh, complex morally than, uh, than perhaps statements like that suggest. Refinements to the initial statement, published at the end of November, brought an advance from demands to proposals. A news statement declared, we must abolish tax havens and ensure companies pay tax that accurately reflects their real profits. 
I don't think we're utopian. I think actually we're very realistic. I think the current political and economic elites in this country are utopian who seem to think that they can get away with allowing such a kind of corrupt system to go on, especially after the financial crisis, and to make us pay for that. I think that's utopian. If they think that people aren't going to, as they are now, organising strikes, organising protests with increasing rapidity, they're fooling themselves because you can't attack working people in this way and not expect a backlash. The protest is um, a legitimate expression of the kind of frustration that there is in uh, British society about a financial crisis for which people feel no responsibility. There's been a banking crisis, it's the fault of the bankers, and yet ordinary people are having to pay the cost of that, and there is a general anger in society in this protest expressed that. But there's a difference between a, a demonstration, a protest and a camp, isn't there? There is, and I think once you enter into a camp, you then um, have to weigh the different responsibilities that you have. You have a responsibility to protest, you have a responsibility to respect the land of the people that you're on, and uh, it may well be that they've crossed that boundary now. But among many other things, the three-way wrestling match between Occupy London, St Paul's Cathedral and the City of London has revealed that there isn't a whole lot of land fit for the purpose of protest left. Much of what I had assumed to be civic realm isn't really public at all. If you just take City of London as an example, most areas that you're in that seem public are privatised. Broadgate Estates, which owns the square which we're prevented from occupying outside LSX, also owns thousands of acres of land all around the city. We were served with an injunction after LSX to say that we couldn't occupy any areas that they owned anywhere else in the city. And that basically means everywhere. There aren't many public spaces left, and it means that you actually have very little in the way of civil liberties. It's very scary. You really have to start to kind of question where our government is taking us. When the Archbishop of Canterbury finally got round to addressing the Occupy issue a month after it had begun, he spoke of the alarming instability we face, the fact that few, if any, can see the route back to normality, and that more and more people are asking whether there is a normal to get back to. It's probably time for the Occupy London campers to go home. And they probably shouldn't bother trying to formulate policy. Their non-hierarchical, full-participation democracy doesn't seem to be very good at it. But the attempt to paint them as either a lunatic fringe or central to future political processes fundamentally misunderstands what they do represent, something which will remain long after those tents have gone. Paul Vallely. You see that in recent days there's been a large strike in Britain. I think that that comes out of the same kind of impulse that this camp comes out of. And there's a kind of impotent rage against a system which is clearly not, not working for the benefit of ordinary people, but which people don't know how to correct. And so you're going to get these gestures of anger and, uh, and rage. And I think the uh, St Paul's protest is one of them, the public sector strike is another, and I think we'll have lots of manifestations of this because people feel cheated. To hear more of our podcasts and to have your say, visit our website, www.thefifthcolumn.co.uk.